0: today's scripture come from psalm 14 the fool says in his heart there is no god they are corrupt they do not they do abominable deeds there is none who does good the lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after god they have all turned aside together they have become corrupt there is none who does good not even one have they no knowledge all the evildoers who eat up the people as they eat bread and do not call upon the lord they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You should shame, shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, today we have a special treat. Um, our dear brother, Pastor Peter Hang. He's back, and he's excited to deliver God's word uh, to us this morning. So without further ado, I'm going to invite our dear brother, Pastor Peter, to come and deliver the word for us. Yes. All right, good afternoon. Um, it's great to be here again um, to share with you the word of the Lord. Thanks for inviting me. I'm here again with my family. For those of you who haven't met, I'm here with my family, Je- uh, Jessica, my wife. She's sitting over there and my four children. They just went off to Sunday school. Um, I noticed that uh, for many churches, summer is a season when, I don't know about NCF, but you know, for a lot of the churches that I've attended, summer is a season when they go through a lot of the psalms. So just a little dad joke for you. Maybe we should start spelling summer with a P in front of it. Summer, you know, in church, right? A little dad humor for this p- Sunday, um, So, coming to our text, um, I remember the first time I heard verse 1 of our text, Psalm 14. There's another psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 53, that sounds almost identical to it, um, but the first verse, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. I remember the first time I heard it was uh, in a context of a debate between a Christian philosopher and an atheist, and they were debating the topic about whether God exists, right? And not all debates go this way, but... In this particular debate, it was very clear that the Christian had outpointed his opponent. Right? He did really well. He really represented the faith. And I remember in the closing argument, right, he quoted the first half of this verse in reference to atheism. Right? He said, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And I remember somehow the way he said it. Right? I don't know if it's his tone or if it's the way I heard it but it sounded like he had just put the nail in the coffin. Right? He knew his opponent was down. He knew he had won the debate. He was on top, and he was coming from a position of strength. He said, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. Right? But if you lean in a little bit, and you read this psalm in the context of its entirety, right, and you read the Psalter, actually, from about Psalm 10 to a few psalms after this, you'll see that what every commentary affirms that this psalm is not a psalm of victory. It's not a psalm of, like, I won. Right? This psalm is actually a lament. It's a psalm of grieving. It's a psalm of sorrow. Right? And laments, what's unique about laments is when you sing it, when you say it, when you confess it, it comes from a posture of weakness. Right? And why do I think this is important to, to, to bring out? Because if you're like me, a lot of the Christian life, that we live, a lot of the Christian life that we experience isn't so victorious, right? It's not like once I started to believe in God, right, all my problems just went away, right? There are peaks in the journey for sure, right? We have good times, we have times of happiness, we have times of celebration, but I notice if you're like me, most of my journey is marked by doubts, it's marked by struggle, it's marked by darkness, it's marked by difficult times, and as I get older, Right, it's a lot of disappointment, a lot of regret. And I wonder if you can connect with me. You know, sometimes I have to admit that a lot of the valleys that I experience are because of bad decisions that I've made in my life. Right? Other times it's inflicted by other people. And other times it just seems like random circumstances just bringing me down, keeping me on the bottom. And if you're not a Christian in here, maybe you can connect with me about this point in life that bad things happen, right? And maybe this is why one of the most persistent so-called arguments against the existence of God is the argument called the problem of evil, if we had to slide up up here. And just as a side note, um, I have to say, if this argument sounds familiar to you guys, it's because Pastor John preached and he referenced this argument on June 9th. And just for full disclosure, he asked me to preach on June 9th. I had no idea he covered this right, at the end of a sermon on June 9th. But here, let's see the argument of evil, right? It's been around since, like, ancient Greece. I think Epicurus um, formed some, some, some kind of argument of evil, but, you know, J.L. Mackey's an Australian philosopher. He broke it down into something really simple, right? He says that um, Christians believe that there is a God who is all good, that there is a God who is all powerful, yet, right, there is evil in this world, right? So you know, you look at this argument and many philosophers will point out that either God is not all-powerful because he's not able to stop all the evil in the world or God is not all-good because he allows evil, right? And because of those two conditions, God can't exist, right? We know that evil is a thing out there in the world, right? If God's all-powerful, why doesn't he stop it? If God is all-good, why does he allow it, right? It's valid in terms of pure logic, Right? And I think if we had to respond to this argument purely in the abstract, right? if this argument was just the thing that we need to kind of put the nail in the coffin and say, hey, atheism doesn't work, this argument is bunk, right? I think that would be kind of easy. Right? The sermon would be over and we'd all pray and we'd go on in our lives. Because right? the logical response to the problem of evil is pretty easy. Right? There is no such thing as evil in a universe apart from God. Right? Think about it. Right? There is no such thing as evil in a universe apart from God. In a universe apart from God, things just are. Right? It's a huge jump to move from how things are to how things should be. Right? If you look out in space and you look at a black hole, right? You know guys you know what black holes are, right? Black holes are exploded stars that has this huge gravitational force and it attracts asteroids and planets and light. It just sucks them all and it crushes them. I know this because I read this on Wikipedia. Right? But the gravity is so intense, right? just, it just sucks everything in and it breaks everything apart. Right? Now, if you look at a black hole out in space, no one looks at it and says, you know, that black hole should really consider the pl- feelings of the planets out there. It should really like, consider how the asteroids feel as it's doing this thing. Right? No, no one says that. Right? It just is. It's just a phenomenon that is out there. Right? And same for us. In an atheist universe, if we are just products of random evolution of random molecules coming together by chance, right? Things just are. As many pastors would note, this is just survival of the fittest. There's no such thing as evil in an atheistic universe. It's a big jump to move from how things are to how things should be, right? But again, in my experience, it's not this logical argument that hangs us up, right? We can't logic our way out of the problem of evil, and why not? It's because we're all human, We don't make decisions based on pure logic. We don't exist in the abstract. We're human, there's a big experiential, emotional part of our brain. And on a deep, emotional, experiential level, right, we know that the problem of evil is real. Our evildoers are real, right? We feel it something about the way things work, something about the way the world works, we have strong feelings when things don't go the way we think it should go, right? There's real pain and suffering in this world. Death is real. Cancer is real. Miscarriages are real. Depression is real, right? Microaggressions that build up and make you really angry, right, that's real, right? And if God is all-powerful, and if as Christians, I believe that God loves me, right, the question is, why am I experiencing these things? Right, why am I suffering? Right, why are not things working out the way I expect them to work out? Right, does this God even exist at all? Right, am I the fool for believing that there is a God? Right, so if you see this psalm as a psalm of certainty, like that debater did, right, that debater quoted, right, it wouldn't be true to how we experience life. Right, but once we start to understand the psalm as a lament, I think it becomes true to life. Right? And I think we can see from this psalm that though we experience evil on a deep emotional level, we still can maintain that God is good. And at the same time, God is still all-powerful. Right? So let's look at Psalm 14. We'll do it under three bullets. Right? Who evil affects, right? why there is evil, and finally, deliverance from evil. So first, let's look at who evil affects. And I hope this point is pretty straightforward. We see in the superscript, right, right on the psalm, I notice uh, Sonny didn't read it, right? but technically there is a superscript under the psalm, and it says it's the psalm of David. Right? David is arguably regarded as the greatest king of Israel. Right? He put Israel on the map. Right? He's like how we might think of Steve Jobs in relationship to Apple, right? except Jobs wasn't a king. Right? David was a king. He had it all, right? When Saul, God sought a new king when Saul was reigning at the time. Right? He told Samuel to go out there and I'm gonna find you this neglected boy, this young kid named David. He's the man that's after my heart, right? He's gonna be the king of Israel, right? And God would like really bless David and love David, right? And he would rule the people, right? And it's David's people, right, who God considered God's covenant People, right? So when David says that he sees evildoers devouring my people in verse 4, right, it should be pretty clear that who David is talking about, the people who are being devoured, right, the people who are being shamed and humiliated, these are David's people. These are the people of God. Right? By the way, um, you see it says that God humiliates the poor. Right. It should be pretty clear from the Bible that God sides with the poor. Right? I remember reading a curious verse in Deuteronomy 15. It says, um, don't harden your heart or shut your hands towards a poor brother or else when he cries out to the Lord against you, you will be guilty of sin. Right? That's power. Right? If you're rich right, and you withhold from the poor and that poor person cries out to the Lord against you, that's when you incur sin on your life. Right? It's like having a, a bat phone, right? directly a Batman. Right, Just call him up. and the wrath of God will come on that person who withheld from the poor. God sides with the poor, right? And evil from the evildoers is causing suffering and pain to the people God loves. It's causing suffering and pain to God's own people, right? Now, this might be a hard truth to swallow, the fact that God would allow his own people to be victims of evil, his own people to be victims of suffering, right? I think we can understand when Bad things happen to bad people, right? Um, I feel conflicted whenever I bring up uh, Game of Thrones from the pulpit. It's kind of a scandalous show, but I know you all watch it, right? Um, So I feel free. But for the remnant of you who have refrained from watching that show on HBO, right? There was a character on that show named Ramsay Bolton, if you remember from some of the earlier seasons, right? And this character was pure evil, Usually, when you see a bad guy on TV, there's usually some like redeeming characteristic about him. Because oh, I understand. Oh, okay, this happened in his past. This happened in his life. I understand why he turned out to be a bad person. But there's no redeeming quality about Ramsey Bolton. So, spoiler alert. Right towards the end of the show, when justice is finally done to Ramsey Bolton, everyone watching is like, oh, feels so good to get rid of this evil person from the show. Right? It was satisfying. We understand when bad things happen to bads people, right? But as God's people, as people who identify as Christians, like many of us who might say, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I had this moment in my life where God felt really real and I've given my life to him and I'm trying real hard to walk with him, pray to him. I'm trying real hard to serve his people. I give my time. I give my money to the church. I'm not perfect, but I sincerely try, right? For people like this, you would think, wouldn't God exempt me from the experience of suffering, right? Well, couldn't he shield us from this? You know, if you notice, I, you didn't see her up here. I guess the younger kids, you know, go to Sunday school first. But my youngest girl, her name is Gracie. Um, if you notice, she's a girl with a cast on her right arm, right? And uh, she was in her backyard a couple of weeks ago. She was playing. We have this thing called the ninja line. It's like a slack line with an obstacle course. And she was like swinging from it. And like, you know, she's a short girl. There's some distance between the ninja line and the floor. And she decided it was a good idea to kind of swing and just kind of fall. And she (laughs) landed right on her arm. And it broke her wrist. And I'll tell you, and Jess will tell you the same thing. You know, when your kid cries, it's like, eh, like, all right, I I can ignore that cry. But there was something different about this cry. It was a cry of pure pain. And if I think back to it, Right? If I were God, or if I were some superman, superhuman being with super years and super speed, if I had the power to anticipate this event, right, maybe just as she's falling off the ninja line, I would have rescued her right there. you know, And right there, because you know, she has to learn her lesson, right, not to jump off the ninja line like that anymore. Right? But I would have rescued her to prevent this pain from happening. Right? And intuitively think, so wouldn't God, wouldn't God do the same thing? For his children who cry out to him. Right? Yet we see in verse two, the Lord looks down from heaven. Right? He sees his own people being devoured, he sees the poor being shamed and humiliated. And it seems like that's all he does. He just looks, no action. Right? And the question is why? 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 That brings us to our second point why evil exists? Why is there evil? in the world, especially when it's targeted towards God's people, right? And um, before I go on to the second point, I just want to say as a side note that I'll admit even as I preach this, you know, even as I prepare this, um, there are still a lot of things about the evil in the world that happens to Christians that doesn't make sense to me. For example, you know, th- I think the most vivid memory I have is, you know, the news story that came out in 2015 of these Coptic Christians who got executed, you know, by ISIS, just one by one. A lot of them were young dads who had families. You know, I think about all the the ch- children of uh, in Christian households who grew up as victims of sexual abuse, people who have severe disabilities, right? Sudden events that put huge emotional and financial strains on families, right? A lot of it as to why it happens is a mystery to me, right? And I don't want to minimize any of it. I don't want to glaze over it, right, as I go through, you know, why evil might exist in the world, right? But having considered that, you know, I want to look at what's going on in our psalm, and I want to try to interpret it in light of what the whole council of Scripture says about evil, about suffering, about pain, and why Christians in particular experience it. Right? And the first reason I want to give that I can gather from this psalm and all of Scripture is for progress in the faith. Right? Why does evil exist? Perhaps God allows evil so we can progress in our faith. Right? We've established that from evil comes suffering and pain. And I will say in the New Testament especially, suffering is the norm for the Christian life. Jesus said, come follow me. And what did he promise? He didn't say, come follow me and all your troubles will be taken care of. Come follow me and you'll have nothing to worry about. He never said that. He said, if you follow me, I guarantee you, you will be persecuted. That's a promise that Jesus gave. Paul said in Romans chapter eight that it's expected that as children of God, we will suffer. First Peter chapter one, he says, the trials have the effect of testing the genuineness of our faith. And James 1, most famously says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, when it has its full effect, will make you perfect and complete. Uh, My dad, um, he runs a dry cleaner. um, And my dad's really old. He's almost turning 70, but he's, he's still going at it. And, you know, part of what he's done, you know, to put food on a table. You know, part of what he's done his whole career, you know, as he's doing this is, you know, after the clothes get washed, sometimes you know there are like these stains that just don't come out. Right? So what they do is, you know, he notices a stain and what they do is they, they they spot it. Right? I guess that's what it's called. It's, it's spotting. Right? These set on stains that won't come out. Right? So recently my dad's got this uh, deal where he cleans uniforms for flight attendants. And they come in large batches and he's been doing, doing this, uh, but he he'll mention that one particular airline has these uniforms. And I don't want to na- mention names. I don't want to do any stereotypes, right? But one particular airline, whenever he gets his batch of uniforms, they have all these nasty, like stubborn stains that just don't come out. And he told me one night he just had to stay so late to get the job done. Each uniform, he had to spot and clean, spot and clean. Right, and he uses these harsh chemicals, and he's got these calloused hands, and the chemicals are so harsh that they like, break into his skin, and he have to do it over and over and over again right, to make sure that his customers are happy. Right? If you know my dad, he's a Christian. You know, he served in his church. He's a retired elder, but he's anything but retired. He's still so involved with it. Right? And he'll tell you, he told, you this, he told me this story, and he says, you know what? This must be how stubborn the stains are In my heart. This must be how it feels for God to try to get rid of the stains that just won't come out of my heart. And I want to say this by way of reminder about what it means to be a Christian. God doesn't take good people and make them better. Remember what we're saved from. Paul actually quotes uh, Psalm 14. In his book, Romans chapter 3, to convict everybody of sin, good or bad, Jew or Gentile, no matter who you are in life, we are all corrupt. There is no one who does good. I want to remind you that before we became Christians, if you are a Christian, we were under slavery. At the core of our hearts, we are dysfunctional, right? We are on a trajectory that leads towards death, and it's God who intersected. It's God who rescued us and gave us a new life. It is God who sets us on a path to know what true glory is, what true greatness is, right? Remember what we were saved from. But as we live this life on this new trajectory, often we have persistent stains in our hearts. We have sins that just won't come off. And often God uses time, sweat, pain, and suffering, so that we can learn to call on him, so that we can learn to depend on him, so that we would learn to enjoy his presence that gives true light. I was reading my Bible. I'm on a reading plan this morning, and I came across Nahum chapter one, verse seven. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows, it's a word of intimacy, those who take refuge in him. Right, so maybe the first reason why God allows evil and suffering and pain in the life of the Christian is for progress in the faith. The second reason right, why God might allow evil is for fruitful community. Fruitful community. That might sound like a jump, right? But obviously David is looking out there. He's looking at his people and collectively they are suffering. Collectively they're being eaten up. Collectively they're being devoured and humiliated. Right? And there's no one in the New Testament that embodies what David might be observing better than Paul, right? The Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul is probably like, you know, if there was like a LeBron James of the New Testament, it was probably the Apostle Paul, right? He wrote about one-third of the New Testament. It's Paul who really shaped a lot of the Christian thought that we have today. And in the book of Corinthians, right, there's two books of Corinthians, two letters to the Corinthians. There are actually four, but we have two in the Scriptures, in right, his letter to the Corinthians, one of the themes that comes out is like these guys are totally looking down on Paul. They're tro- to- totally treating him with contempt. Right? They have these like, great speakers, these great theologians. They have these great like, super apostles, as they call them. And they say, you know what? I know God is with that super apostle because he speaks so well. I know God is present with that person because he's so gifted. This Paul guy, you know, he, he, writes, he talks a big game when he writes his letters. You ever see him in person? He's like, not much to look at. Right? So they're totally looking down on Paul. They're saying, Paul, I don't think you're all that. Right? that that's, that's what he's responding to in a lot of his letters. Right? You, talk, you talk a big game, but you're not much in person. And I could feel the frustration in Paul as he responds to the Corinthians in his letters. Right? I feel the frustration. Right? And the thing about Paul is he doesn't play into their game. He doesn't say, oh yeah, those super apostles did this, look at me. He doesn't do that. He doesn't play into their game. Instead of elevating himself, he does the exact opposite. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's a a famous passage. I'm not going to read it all for us. But he highlights this thing that he calls a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan. Paul says, you know, I see visions. I've gone up to the third heavens. I don't even know what the third heavens is. Like I I don't even know if I've ever been anywhere close to that. He said, God has shown me great things. But I'm not going to talk about any of this to you guys. What I'm going to highlight instead is this thorn. Thorn in his flesh, a messenger from Satan, something that makes him weak. Right? And obviously this thorn was a source of suffering and pain for Paul. It was evil. Right? And I think if God didn't want it there, for a guy that he used so powerfully like the Apostle Paul, God would have taken it out of his life. Don't you think? Right? In fact, Paul goes as far as to say, you know, I've prayed to God. Three times I've pleaded with him to take this away from me. And three times, I don't think it's literal three times. But he's saying, I have prayed so much that now I'm done. I got the answer to my prayer. And this is what, this is what Jesus says in response to Paul's request to remove that thorn. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So what does Paul say later to the Corinthians? He doesn't say, you know what? Look at me. I have all the spiritual revelation. No, he says, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He's embodying what David is observing as he sees his people being eaten up, as he sees his people being humiliated. Now, when people with thorns, like Paul, gather together, and they put it on display like Paul did, and when people with these thorns share authentically in a posture of weakness and vulnerability, I'll tell you something magical happens. Here's this excerpt from Henry Nowen. I don't know if you can see it up on your screen. Henry Nowen is a Roman Catholic uh, theologian. And he con- I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, but he contrasts successfulness and fruitfulness. You can read it while I talk, because I know that's what you do anyway. I do it, you know, when pastors talking, there's something up on the screen. I end up just reading what's on the screen, All right? Now, he contrasts successfulness and fruitfulness. And I, I'm not here to knock success in and of itself. I don't think it's bad to strive for success. We train our kids for success. All of us enjoy the fruits of success, arguably, right? But there's a special kind, a community that's built on weakness. You know, recently um, my family went through one of the hardest times that we faced together. As a family, and uh, you know, I don't want to go into you know too many of the details, but it was a very difficult season, and we're still in it in many ways, especially for my wife Jessica, right? And as we were going through the thick of it, you know, we talked about you know, like how should we share this with the people around us? Should we share it with the people around us? Right? How much of this should we share with the people around us? How do we tell our children about what's happening? Right? And all these thoughts came into our heads. The possibility of rejection, shame, contempt. Right? But we decided to take that plunge. Right? So to close friends in our neighborhood, they're not Christians, right? to our growth group in the church, we decided to share our thorn. Right? And let me tell you, the amount of prayer, the amount of blessing, the amount of support that came our way, Really helped us through that time. It's continuing to help us. Right? You feel the hand of God ministering to you on another level when you share your thorns, when you're united by weakness. Right? Notice that having been vulnerable to other people and having opened up, people are starting to open up to us and create a space where we can minister to them. Right? It's a different kind of community that's built on weakness. Right? No one asks for evil. No one asks for suffering and pain. But maybe this is a reason why God allows it into our lives, right? for the purpose of people coming together in fruitful, true fruitful community. Right? So we consider two reasons why God might permit evil. First, progress in the faith. Right? Second, fruitful community. Now to my last point, deliverance from evil. Deliverance from evil. I want to recap what we talked about so far. We said at the beginning that this psalm is a lament because evil is real. It's something that we feel in our guts. Pain and suffering is real, even for the Christian. At the same time, we saw a couple of good reasons why God might allow evil to be there, right? That suffering and pain have a purpose. And now to kind of wrap this up, I want to look at our final verse, verse 7. Right? It says this, Oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion when the Lord restores his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Right? The psalmist here is hoping for salvation that's to come sometime in the future. It's got to come out of Zion. right? Zion is another word for the holy city out of which the Savior would emerge and save God's people. Right? He visions a time when everybody who are being devoured now, everyone who's being shamed now, everyone who's suffering from evil, from suffering and pain, will one day be saved from all of that. He's envisioning a time when any of this will be no more. Right? Instead of lament, there'll be gladness. And for David, who's writing Psalm 14, Psalm 53, this might have been like a, a vague vision of the future. Right, but I think for us on this side of the New Testament, right, we have this vision with a little more clarity. Because right? unlike David, we're beneficiaries of generations and generations of witnesses who bore witness to the Son of God who loved this world so much instead of saying high up in the heavens, he took on the form of a body. He came into this earth and he didn't live a life of glory while he was here. No, he subjected himself to suffering He voluntarily made himself vulnerable to evil. So much that it brought about his death on the cross. But here's the point, right? And here's the substance of our vision. After three days, Jesus, what? He rose from the dead. And so many people have seen this. A man who died and rotted in the grave, rose from the grave. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, Christ is the first fruits of what's going to happen to us. That in him, we can expect that even though we suffer evil, even though we die in this world, that one day in the future, Jesus will come from Zion and he will raise us from the dead. We will be united to him and we will enjoy a life without suffering, without pain, without tears. A life where we will be made perfect and complete. Where justice will be done for the evildoer a life where we're together in perfect, joyful community, right? And so we wait. We wait for that time. And until that time, we suffer well. Right? We go through difficult times, yes, and at times it might be tempting to say, you know, I must be the fool for believing that there is a God. But we hope and we hold on. Right? We lament at the presence of evil and suffering, but we endure it. We cling to our weakness as we cling to Christ. We find solace in our community. right? Because as the psalmist says, God is with the generation of the righteous. The Lord is our refuge. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. Lord, I, I don't know if... For some reason, this topic seems to come up over and over again in my life. For some reason, I I don't know, maybe there are others in this room who struggle with the presence of pain and suffering in their own lives. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would look at this psalm and we would see, Father, there is pain and suffering directed at your people. But at the same time, there's purpose for it. And God, as we, as we live through it, as we learn to cling to you, as we share our weakness and our vulnerability with others, as a community forms around it, help us to suffer well. Help us to lament well. Help us to cling to you well. And Father, help us to, and give us that hope for the future for one day justice will be served for the unrepentant and that you will make all things right. In your name we pray, amen.